0: Du hører på Litteraturhusets podcast som presenterer bearbeidede versjoner av samtaler og foredrag fra Litteraturhusets program. Er du interessert i mer informasjon, kan du gå til litteraturhuset.no for oversikt over alle våre arrangementer. Good evening everyone and welcome to the opening nights of the House of Literature's very own free speech commission. My name is Susanna Kaluza, and as director of the House of Literature, it is my great honor to offer a very warm welcome to our opening speaker, Nasiun Malick. I will introduce her further in a moment. But allow me first to tell a little bit about this project in Norwegian. There are over 20 år since we last had an freedom of expression commission in Norway. Then you did a good job and delivered one of the most well-written and Swedish public reports we have 20 years since. I Norge er vår lovfestet i grunnlovens paragraf 100. Men hva er yttringsfrihet og når er du egentlig fri? Där som du vet att säga si din mening höjt betyder att du må räkna med att jevnligen motta grov trakassering och trusler. hvor fri är er du i realiteten då? Jag rätt att si vad jag menar. si folk ofta när de blir motsagt och det har de. Slik alla andra har rätt till att motsi dem. Det är er lov att ha starka meningar och det er också lov att ha det andra måtte mene. Är er sårende, eller dumme eller feilaktiga meninger. En motyttring är er heller inte censur, det är er starten på en samtale. Siden förre kommissionen 1999 har vi sett att nuförtiden samtalen splittas upp. Vi får inte längre nyheten varare från de samma källorna, men i algoritmen styrte fider där våra meninger förstärkas och motförställningarna försvinner. Hos Google och Facebook är er inte uttägsmuligheterna det stora problemet, det är er motuttäringarna som är er truet. Vi klapper hverandre på skulderen, jubler over våre meningsfellers spissformulerte one-liners mot fienden, som ikke er til stede, fordi hun eller han gör akkurat det samme med sine allierte i sin egen trygge och i sin egen skreddeskydde meningssilo. Resultatet är er urovekkende. Vi skjønner hverandre ikke, fordi vi ikke lenger kjenner hverandre. Vi liker å tänka på den offentlige arena som en open bana, där det är er rom for alle. Men vi overser att banen er full av skyttegraver og forsvarsstillinger. Eller at banen er bygget slik at alltid må spille i motbakke. Vi ser ikke at arenans lyskastere er ujevnt fordelt slik att noen blir opplyst mens andra spiller i skyggen. Og vi er ikke engang enige om vem som får sole seg i og hvem som blir henvist till sidelinja. Hvis du er vant att få størsteparten kan det føles urettferdig og plutselig måtte dele likt. Og hvis du er vant och å ikke bli hört, kan du føle det nødvendig å skru temperaturen for att bli nettopp det. På vårt värsta vrangleser vi varandra med stor entusiasme nede i hver vår skyttegrav. Det ville vi på Litteraturhuset gjøre noe med, for vi trenger å snakke sammen. Vi trenger att la varandra tänka tankene helt ut. Vi trenger och lytte, och vi trenger at debatten om ytringsfrihet løftes ut fra små fora, og vi trenger att flere bryr Därför Derfor arrangerer vi på Litteraturhuset denne åpne foredragsserien rettet mot ett allmänt publikum. På vart arrangement fremover kan du høre tankene fra to ulike foredragsholdere, så utfordringene ytringsfriheten møter i dag blir belyst fra ulike ståsted. Först ut er Nestrin, som vi snakker med, Nasnin Khan Østre. Lördag kan du høre teknolog Bjørn Stark og lege Mina Adampor. Lördag 1. februar är er det kritiker Bjørne Riese och og fritt ords Frank Rossavik, men søndag 2. februar kan du høre från norsk pens Kersti Løken Stavrum og min nærværdedaktør Nils Auguste Andresen. Og slik fortsetter vi med flere arrangementer, også for barn, Fram till avslutningen i slutten av februar med jurist Annine Kjærhulf og forfatter Åsa Lindeborg. Likevel gjenstår et tankekors. De som ska snakke här är er privilegierte. De som kommer inte för lytta, är er nog också mer privilegierte än snittet. Det är er den offentliga arenas utfordring. För att böta på det tar vi på litteraturisse vårt ansvar som arena på allvar. Vi tar upp dessa föredragna. Vi ger dem ut som gratis podcast. Vi delar dem vedlagsfritt med mediehus. Vi vill också samla dem och överlämna dem till regeringens egen yttrandefrihetskommission. Vi vill inte vara den offentliga samtalen, men vi vi startar den. And to start it, we are proud to have our opening speaker. Nasrin Malik is a columnist and commentator in The Guardian. She writes about race, class and gender in a way that forces readers to think and see. In a world where the ground rules originally were defined by the white, by the male and by the rich, she harnesses her power from the quality of her thinking and the clarity of her argument. She's not preaching for the choir. She's genuinely arguing with those firmly entrenched in their hegemony, those willingly blind to the blindly obvious. We are not playing on a level field, and speech is not equally free to all. In her book, We Need New Stories, challenging the toxic myths behind our age of discontent, she discusses where we stand based on this thesis. Our society is an ideology built on its chosen myths. Myths must be challenged, and we are proud to have Nasrin Malek here to challenge them tonight. After her lecture, we have the author, the editor and the member of the original Freedom of Speech Commission, Nasneen khan Astam here to interview her. But first, please give Nasreen Malik a very warm welcome.
1: Thank you very much. What an introduction. Gosh, um, I'm always a bit scared of really good introductions because then you have to live up to them. <laughs> So hopefully I'll live up to that amazing introduction. Um, I'm Nisreen, I'm extremely happy to be here. Um, I'm always quite encouraged when people take freedom of speech issues seriously and without trying to make them into a fight, whether you're for or against freedom of speech, we're all for freedom of speech, no one is saying they want to make freedom of speech disappear. Um, so the debate has become very complicated because it's just, I don't know what it's like um, in Norway, but in the UK and the US, it's very, it's like a football match, You know, so you get a team, are you pro-free speech, are you anti-free speech? And that's actually not the argument. The argument is that the free speech laws and the free speech culture that we have at the moment is not really fit anymore for the challenges that our society faces. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about how this freedom of speech um, challenge came about. It's relatively recent. I would say it's probably about four or five years old um, in the shape that it's in now, but has been developing for 10 to 15 years. Um, it's a combination of the rise in social media, the ability for people to have access to speech, whereas before they didn't have access to speech, um, and also the rise of right-wing populism and the expansion of society to include new identities. So it's come because of an intersection of many things happening at the same time. Um, and I've, just to explain how it happened and what the problem is, and how potentially it can be solved. Uh, Before I start, I want to quote something from a Berkeley University academic in the US, which I thought really crystallized the danger of the free speech myth. Um, The free speech myth is that we are in a crisis, um, that free speech is being attacked, that people are being silenced by you name it. You know, whichever minority you want to put in that box, liberals, uh, black people, trans people, minority, whatever, people are there to shut you up and not allow you to have freedom of speech. And this is a very dangerous idea. So my introduction is, the way I put it in a nutshell, is free speech is not an abstract value. It's not something that exists in a different plane of philosophy or political theory. It's very much affecting people's everyday lives. So free speech as an abstract value is now directly at odds with the sanctity of life. It's not really a matter of offense. People talk about free speech challenges as just people being offended, people having thick skin, people being snowflakes, um, as opposed to it being something that's actually quite dangerous and actually claims not only lives, but reduces the quality of living of certain people in certain societies. So Judith Butler said, uh, she's a cultural theorist, she said, if free speech does take precedence over every other principle and every other community principle, then perhaps we should no longer claim to be weighing or balancing competing values. We should admit that we have agreed in advance to have our community sundered, to have racial and sexual minorities demeaned, and the dignity of people denied, that we are in fact willing to be wrecked by this principle of free speech. So here is the danger, that there is potentially a wrecking of society, a wrecking of community relations, because of this attachment to some abstract notion of free speech. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about where I think free speech is at the moment, and how I came to realize that things were changing. So even though there is a belief that free speech is in crisis, it has in fact never been more free and never been less intermediated. If any of you want to say anything you want right now, you can go online, you can go on Twitter, you can do it on your Facebook, you could set up a website for almost no money. 20, 30 years ago, that was not available to you. So in that sense, free speech is now available to so many more people than it was before. Anyone with internet access can create a profile and write, tweet, blog, or comment with no vetting and no hurdle of skill. But the targets of this growth, of this means of expression, have been primarily women, minorities, and LGBTQ plus people. Lesbian, uh, bisexual, gender, transgender, queer plus people. A Pew Research Center survey revealed that a wide cross section of Americans experience online abuse, but that the majority was directed towards minorities. So, out of all the abuse online that was crunched in the US, a quarter went to African Americans, 10% to Hispanics, and 3% to white people. The same is the picture is not much different in the UK. Uh, out of a 2017 report analyzing tweets sent to British members of parliament, all women, 177 female MPs were were, uh, surveyed. The 20 of them, so 20 women out of 177, the 20 of them who were from a black and ethnic minority background received half the total of abusive tweets. Of, from almost 200, 10% received half the abuse. I, I personally participated in the Guardian survey uh, a few years ago. So in the Guardian, we have comments. I'll talk this, about this in a bit. We have this comment section. It's under articles that you write. So I got approached by an editor saying, we want to understand what the kind of violent speech under our articles looks like. So we want to survey who gets more more abuse. And I just thought, people who post under articles are generally crazy. So I'm just assuming we all get a lot of abuse. I didn't think that it was particularly different. And I was really shocked by the result because it turned out that three out of 40 columnists received almost 90% of the abuse. And that was me, uh, a feminist writer and a gay, black, American male from the US. And I, and I, it was shocking to me because I didn't realise how normalised it had become to me. I just thought, surely this happens to everyone. But it doesn't. So the vast majority of this abuse goes unpunished. The vast majority of this people, you know, saying Muslims are inherently violent, or that I should go back and marry a terrorist every time I write about clothes or something completely unrelated. Um, none of this is punished. You know, you try and report it to moderators, to you know, people on Twitter, on Facebook, and they come back and say, oh, we've had a look, and it hasn't, it hasn't violated our community guidelines. And you're like, what does violate your community guidelines? Um, so the vast majority, I'm just trying to build a picture here, it's just how much free speech we have, right? None of this goes uh, punished. And yet, it is somehow conventional wisdom that free speech is under assault, that university campuses have succumbed to an epidemic of silencing, that social media mobs are ready uh, to attack people at the most innocent joke, uh, or that enlightenment values that protected the right to free speech and individual liberty are under threat. The reason for this it is claimed is a liberal totalitarianism that is about intolerance and thin skin. It is at once fascist and also weak and easily wounded. I don't know how that works. So I get told that liberals are both fascists and trying to silence people but they're also really sensitive. And that's why they can't handle free speech. And I'm like, "Well, which is it, you know? Are they fascists or are they snowflakes? You can't be both." Um, So this is allegedly why us liberals do it. So this is the myth of the free speech crisis. The myth of the free speech crisis is an extension of the political correctness myth, which is that everyone is being silenced to be polite all the time. But it is a recent mutation that is more specifically linked to efforts to normalize hate speech or shut down, this is very important, shut down legitimate responses hate speech. The purpose of this myth is not to secure more freedom of speech, that is, the right to express your opinion without censorship, restraint, or legal penalty. The purpose is to secure the license to speak with no punishment. So not freedom of expression, but rather freedom from the consequences of that expression. This is what the free speech crisis myth is about. People want to say whatever the hell they want, without any response to it, without being told that that is inciting violence, that that is assaulting people's dignity, that that is merely unkind, then you're assaulting free speech. In this way, the myth has two parts. The first is that all speech should and is free, and that everyone has the right to a platform. The second part of the free speech myth is that freedom of speech means freedom from objection which I just touched on. So I'm going to speak a little bit now about how I found myself in the middle of the change towards free speech um, attitudes. So I began writing in an online age. I'm showing my age now. So I began writing in 2008. Um, I know. (laughs) Whoever gasped, that's like my inner voice all the time. I'm like, I can't believe it's been 12 years. Um, I began writing in 2008. My first pub, uh, column was published, and I remember well how unprepared I was for the comments that began appearing underneath. There are generally two types of of writer of journalist today, and you can pretty much age them by their attitude towards comments. So. Anyone roughly born before, like, 1975 <laughs> just thinks comments are a disgrace, right? They're just like, I can't believe you're allowing the great unwashed to comment on my work. <laughs> um, and anyone, you know, people who are kind of millennial and younger, they just this is what they grew up with. They just assume if you say something online, someone will find you and respond, right? So I began writing when this was already done. Um, so the comments began appearing underneath my articles. And from the beginning, there was no space between me and the reader at all. It was, it was kind of amazing. There was no intermediary, just an online moderator at The Guardian, whose job it was to delete comments that violated the terms of the newspaper. So I remember writing my first article, and this is an incredibly um, sensitive moment and the first comments began appearing and, you know, now I would just ignore them. But then it was incredibly painful, people saying, did you get paid to write this? Or, you know, you're a Muslim, what are you doing here? If you thought Islam was so great, why wouldn't you go back to where you came from? Um, what about FGM? What about people that told me, are, you know, are you circumcised? Like loads of really quite personal and um, angry comments on actually quite a simple article. Um, I remember having to walk, actually, I left my desk, I went and took a walk around the corner and just kind of breathed because I was feeling really ill um, with the effect of these comments. And so they questioned my intelligence, my honesty, they stayed at my writing, but I got over it very quickly because it seemed a futile exercise to worry about what an audience would think instinctively, being from that generation I just told you about, that began in the real and virtual worlds, I had a sense of what was worth engaging with and what was a sort of online compulsion to say something just because you could, to make a noise because you know someone, ideally even the author, would read it. So I began to engage with the commenters, who made valid points actually sometimes, and urge those who I sense had something interesting to say to reread the piece and return if they said something particularly stupid. Sometimes I would react to those who were abusive in a very calculated, dismissive tone. It was like being a teacher in front of a difficult class sometimes. I'd be like, okay, some of you are rowdy. You know, some of you have had too much sugar at lunch. Um, but we're going to get there. You know, we're going to get to the end of this lesson and we're going to make the point that I wanted to make. And it was thrilling, exhilarating. The threads at that time were open for 72 hours, so every article had a tale of three days of me just being in the comments and being like, yes, Mr. Robot 1567, thank you for your comment. I think this is really... It was just three days after each article I would spend talking to people and trying to get them around. But in the decades since, what happened was very slowly, those comments became less rude and sneering and more actually quite violent. So people would comment about how I looked or say they wished I was raped or they would say, you know, I hope your dad had the very painful death. It just became really quite, um, quite violent is the only word I can think of it, and it happened kind of gradually, so I didn't really realize what was going on, and I was just like, maybe it's me, maybe I just have lost control of the class, you know, maybe I need to write my articles a little bit differently. Um, but it wasn't that. What was happening was that the online space and the tone of the online space had changed, and it had changed because by the day hundreds of thousands of people were signing up to the internet. They were signing up to social media, they were signing up to comments on The Guardian, um, and it became a big attention-seeking exercise for people. The only way you get attention is to say something really vile. Um, the only way to become an, as a person who wasn't an, an anonymous face in the middle of these hundreds and thousands of voices is to be a controversialist. Does that sound familiar? In that 10 years later, those people that were just like little faces bobbing up and down in the comment thread are now journalists and controversialists and provocateurs, um, people who make a living out of basically a sort of free speech ambulance chasing. Right. So every time something happens, like we have it in the UK right now with Meghan Markle and Prince Harry, which I do not want to talk about, (laughs) Um, but I will just mention uh, in terms of this kind of controversialist role is that the moment it happened, our controversialists, our provocateurs popped up all of them, and said, well, you know what she's like. You know, She's from this family, and she wants to take Harry down. And what, what, what do you mean that people are being racist towards her? She's just making it all up. So they, they, they have now taken control of the discussion. They've, they've made it about how woke, entitled, young, left-wing people are being very demanding. So They've reframed the argument completely. That's the last thing we'll say about it. Um, And so what happened, just to finish the the history of these comments, because it's a microcosm of what happened online, is that the moderators came to me and said, we are going to have to shut comment threads down. And I argued with them. I was like, but, you know, that's giving up, basically. If you write a piece and there's no one there to challenge you, then we're going back, surely. You know, please, can we leave them open? Maybe just leave them open for one day. You know? Maybe just leave them open for two hours. And they said, look, we A, don't have the resources to police all these threads all the time because there is now so many more people commenting. Threads went from being 100 a piece to 2,000 a piece in four or five years. Um, and also, this is a very important point we have a duty of care to our writers. You have particularly thick skin for whatever reason, but we have young people who are starting out. We have people that don't want to log on every day and have to deal with rape threats. You know, We have people that don't want people to say, I know where you live, and have to uh, you know, behind their back. So The Guardian shut down the comments on certain articles, and I felt like that was a massive failure, that this, this effort that we had to get somewhere and make an argument and bring people on board was derailed by people wanting to shout into an online space and get some attention. So, I go, I go through this history to show that challenging the myth of the free speech crisis does not mean enabling the state, i.e. the moderators, to even to, to, to police and censor, I am arguing that there is no crisis at all. This is not an issue of free speech. It's an issue of violent and abusive speech. As far as we were concerned, have at it. We opened the comment thread for you, right? We started the, on the basis of free speech and you violated the rules of that arrangement. The freedom of speech crisis is myth, however. So when people find that... It's really funny, so when... When, um, the art, when the comment threads began to get shut down, people would then find me on, on other modes, or email me and be like, you've shut, you've shut the thread down, so you lose the argument immediately because you're against freedom of speech. So that is a concept that is used to guilt people into accepting a wrong definition of what free speech is. So the free speech crisis myth is, the purpose of it is to guilt people into giving up their right of response to attack. We all have rights. We have, you have the right to speak, I have the right to respond. And to destigmatize racism and prejudice. It aims to blackmail good people into ceding space to bad ideas, even though they have a legitimate right to refuse those ideas. And it is, a myth, it is a myth that demands its own silencing and its own undermining of individual freedom. To accept the freedom of the free speech myth, of the free speech crisis, sorry, to accept the freedom of speech crisis myth is to give up your right to turn off those comments. We all have that right. Um, and that right is something that is extended to you in your home, in your place of work, um, in your social life, We do not have an obligation to tolerate people's views that we don't accept or that we think are violent. And what the free speech myth has done is it's guilted us into accepting that. So there's this whole obsession with no platforming, which I'll come to later. And no platforming, I was speaking to a journalist about this from, from uh, Oslo a couple of days ago. Is this scandal that happens in universities where people are invited and then disinvited for their views? And there was an incident, I believe, a few weeks ago. Um, and the no platforming issue again demands a platform. Free speech crisis thinking is to demand a platform all the time. So I have all these views, and I want to come and say them in your house at your dinner table. If you reject that, are you anti-freedom of speech? No, you're not. But we tend to view platforms in the world very differently to how we view our own spaces, and that's not true. Every platform is a space, right? Every platform has its rules. It has its owners, right? It has its own laws. And so what we forget when we say platform, you know, universities are rescinding invitations, is that a university is a private space with private citizens, with student bodies who have the right to make that decision, right? And I'll get to that later. Um, so the free speech crisis, the free speech myth, um, is a result of two developments. So I talked about the increase in free speech and the new entrance in society of new identities. So this is the second very important component. So in a weird way, and this runs through all myths that we have at the moment, in a a weird way, the political political correctness crisis, free speech myth crisis, all that kind of stuff, is because things are getting better, right? So things are... They sound like they're 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 getting worse, but that's because things are getting better. It's because there are more women in the workplace. It's because there are more brown and black people in your face. It's because there are more people of different sexualities that you see on television, that you see in your own family. You know, your son comes home with someone that you don't have never met that kind of person before. Um, and so, the the reason why we have all these these knee-jerk backlashes, why we have a rise in hate speech and online abuse, is because the targets of these type of speech, of this type of speech, just didn't exist before. So it's a good thing. You know, the fact that we are having, we're coming up against these issues is because these people, these minorities, these peripheral identities are now more and more in the mainstream. And so when people begin to attack them, it's because they didn't see them before. So that's one way to think about when people say, well, why suddenly? Like, this whole thing is stupid, because why would suddenly people start being abusive to people? You know, why would suddenly there be a rise in far-right thinking? Why would suddenly there be a rise in racism that... That um, destroys your point that we have a crisis. I'm like, well, because the targets of these didn't exist before. So that's what happens. When a society goes through change, when it starts going through some sort of demographic development and a liberalization and a progression in sexual attitudes and racial attitudes, there'll be, there are going to be people that kick back against that. And those people are using free speech as an excuse to do so. So the first component of the myth, which is that free speech is absolute and should be free all the time, is simply not true. So this is what people come to me, since the book has come out, people come to me and say, like, what do we say to people when they say free speech is you know, under threat? And I'm like, just tell them that you never had free speech in the first place. You, know, you don't have free speech now. None of us have absolute free speech now. If I stood here and libeled someone, I'd be taken to court. Um, That is not something we say is against free speech, is it? Generally, we don't. So first, let us dispense with the biggest part of this myth, which is that there is no such thing as free speech. It doesn't exist. We have many laws that curb speech. We have libel. We curb libel. We curb incitement to violence. We curb incitement to racial hatred. Um, Some people in the workplace ban uh, speech that is demeaning um, from an identity point of view to co-workers. These are all restrictions that we live with all the time. The uncomfortable truth, however, the thing that people don't want to understand is that these laws broadly reflect the biases of the society you live in, which is why you don't see them. They're invisible to you because you agree with them right? But they're also subjective. They're up for debate, you know? So, when someone says, well, of course, libel is illegal, I'm like, why of course? Why have you decided that libel is illegal, but abusing people because of their religion is not? Which is more dangerous? Like, which is more problematic? This is the point of the myth that is really uncomfortable for people to grapple with because it tears apart our own commitment to what we think are these very clean values, right? These enlightenment principles that we have that philosophers have worked very hard in dark rooms with candlelight and feather quills to come up with. Um, And when you... When you talk about you know, John Locke or Milton or all these Enlightenment philosophers, people talk about them like they're prophets, right? Like they, come, they came up with these very rigorous laws on free speech, but if you go back, you'll find that, you know, for example, there was a lot of people at the time, many of these philosophers who thought that, for example, having uh, pornographic or sexually explicit texts in books, but that you should burn them. Doesn't stand up very well today. Um, but like all religions, you dispense with what you like, and you keep what you know. You keep what you like. Um, so this is this is this is the bit I struggle with most with liberals, um, because the first thing they say is, "Look, you know, Enlightenment values got us here. You know, we are in a good place because we followed these rules: individual liberty, freedom, freedom of speech, um, libertarianism." And I think, well, they got you this far, but that's it. They need to be modified for the next phase. You had a good run, right? Um, And those laws applied to those post-enlightenment societies as long as they stayed exactly in that shape and in that format. But they have changed. And when you... It's like talking to people about... um, uh, religion, like talking to my mother about religion, which I do not advise, is, you know, she's always talking about how, so I'm Muslim, and she says, well, you know, the Quran applies to every, every time and every stage. And I'm like, well, but it came at a time when society had very different values. So how is it supposed to be tailored to the values that we have today? Um, so the same thing applies to Enlightenment principles. What we forget is that the French Revolution and the Enlightenment and then the Industrial Revolution happened at a time when women couldn't vote, right? When there were no brown or black people around that weren't slaves. So it would be very surprising if they didn't need some modifying. I'm going to give you an example of, of how subjective our free speech attitudes really are. <laughs> So, just to recap, what is considered speech-worthy of protection is broadly subjective and depends on the consensual, consensual limits a society has drawn. Western societies, like I said, like to think of their version of free speech as objective and pristine, but it is also tainted by convention. A good example of how we are, in fact, agreed upon limitations to free speech, where it suits us, is the case of a gentleman known as Milo Yiannopoulos. Have you heard of this guy, Milo? I'll go through it. Um, Anyway, so Milo was a provocateur. Um, He was a guy in the comment threads. This is the kind of person that he is. So he was someone who worked for Breitbart News in the U.S., which is Steve Bannon, um, one of Donald Trump's um, henchmen. Sorry? No, I know Steve Bannon. You know Steve Bannon. We him, yeah. Oh, did you? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Huh. Well, we can talk about that later. Remind us talk about that later. Uh, so, Milo built his reputation on attacking minorities online. A huge following. Millions of followers and a huge. Um, career in uh, speeches at universities, where all he did was call black women ugly, um, say feminists weren't getting laid, uh, said, for example, you know, immigrants should be repacked, like crazy stuff, crazy stuff. And he became a very respectable figure. He was invited to US universities to speak. He was getting massive book deals. Um, and it was at his book deal that things changed. So we were all, when Milo was becoming more famous and more important, people like me were just like, "How has this happened? How has someone come from like the trench of like online dirt and is now on CNN, you know, or is now on uh, speaking at an Ivy League university? I could not understand. Me and several people just could not understand how that happened. Um, the obvious answer was that because what he was saying wasn't particularly offensive to people who had the power, right? To those who had access to platforms. It was only offensive to us. But anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. So, um, Milo got a book deal with Simon & Schuster for $250,000, which is more than I got. Um, so, he believes that feminism is, is a cancer, that rape culture is a myth. Uh, In 2016, he was actually permanently banned from Twitter for conducting a coordinated abuse campaign against a US black actor. Uh, when he was suspended, he said, this is the guilting people thing again, he said, Twitter has confirmed itself as a safe space for Muslim terrorists and Black Lives Matter extremists, but a no-go zone for conservatives. Apparently, it's conservative to like, target black people on Twitter. I didn't know that was the case. But um, In 2017, Milo was offered a $250,000 contract to write a book for Simon & Schuster. There was a big public outcry, outcry, uh, justifiably. The publisher defended his decision by releasing a statement in which it described Milo as simply someone with controversial opinions, who will take his place among their array of other authors, many of whom are also controversial. He will appeal to many audiences and readers. Calls for a boycott sent liberal free speech campaigners into an indignation of chivalry. One of my very uh, good friends is um, a—he works for an Index on Censorship organization—and he wrote, among with other people, a letter defending Milo's book deal. Um, So like the political. So the, the the free speech crisis concern appeals to a certain type of liberal. This is my friend here. I was basically writing about him. Uh, oblivious to how these moral panics are fabricated and manipulated by those with an agenda and blinded by their eagerness to land on the right side of liberty. So all these good people, good liberals, perfect impeccable politics, vegans, you know, they wrote a letter, woke people, they wrote a letter, they massage kale, like perfect people. They wrote a letter defending Milo's book deal. So, the National Coalition Against Censorship issued a statement in opposition to a boycott of Milo's book, claiming that it will have a chilling effect on authors and publishers and will not prevent the spread of noxious ideas. This statement said that the suppression of these ideas does not defeat them. Only vigorous disagreement can counter toxic speech effectively. All ideas, they said, or they meant, good or bad, should be heard, if someone will buy them, of course. Um, Milo was just another flower in the flourishing garden of opinion. He's just one, you can take it or leave it, right? Um, But it was not enough that Milo just be, it was also important that he has an audience that is willing to purchase his book. They weren't taking an anonymous person, an unknown intellect, because they thought that he had great I mean, amazing ideas. They were just like, he has millions of followers, his book will sell. Just pay him. So who were Schleiman & Schuster, according to them, to dictate what should be published and what should not? They, the, the company was just an intermediary between opinion and audience. That's all. That was their position. It was just this very worthy kind of like, you know, we wouldn't ever get involved in saying what was a good opinion and a bad opinion, we just, we're the intermediator. So it turned out, unfortunately, that Simon Schuster was a little bit more than an intermediator, it was very bad luck for them, because later in the same year that he secured his book contract, a footage appeared in which Milo endorsed sex with minors. Very bad day for Simon and Schuster. Um, In a podcast that was leaked, Milo said that And I quote, we get hung up on this child abuse stuff, he said. He believed the current legal age of consent was probably about right before saying that some teenagers are capable of consenting to sexual activity at a younger age. It gets a whole lot worse, actually. He says there are certain people who are capable of giving consent at a younger age. I certainly, he said, consider myself to be one of them. This particularly happens in the gay world, he said. Relationships between 13-year-olds and 25-year-olds were fine, he specified. Consent was arbitrary and oppressive. He said that relationships between younger boys and older men, coming-of-age relationships, he called them, are places in which those older men help those young boys to discover who they are and give them security and safety. This was too much even for one of the presenters of the podcast that he was on. He said, this sounds like priest molestation to me, the presenter said. And Milo replied, and do you know what? I am grateful to Father, Mike, my Father Michael. I wouldn't give nearly as good a blowjob if it wasn't for him. Yeah. Uh, so, two. there's people now in a very awkward position, right? So you have Simon & Schuster with its huge book deal, and you have all the liberals of the kale-eaters who defended him. Um, so where did they go? What do you think happened? You know, what do you think happened to these people who cared so much about free speech and said that it was not their position to cancelled the contract? Simon and Schuster dropped him, and Index on Censorship went very quiet. No one came back and said, but we still have to defend his right to free speech. So once Milo's book deal was rescinded, the writer Roxane Gay wrote, when his comments about pedophilia came to light, the publisher realized it would cost them more money to do business with Milo than he could earn for them. So the free speech issue was just a red herring. You know, It wasn't about that at all. It was just an excuse to guilt people to allow this book to be published for commercial purposes. They did not finally do the right thing And we now know where their threshold lies. They were fine, not only the publisher, but also the good liberals who defended him. They were fine with racist and xenophobic comments and sexist ideologies. They were fine with his transphobia, his antisemitism and his Islamophobia. They were fine with how he encouraged his followers to harass women and people of color and transgender people online. Certainly, Simon & Schuster was not alone in what they were willing to tolerate. A great many people were perfectly comfortable with the targets of Milo's hateful attention until that attention hit too close to home. That is the dirty secret about freedom of speech. That rather than being an ideal, it is in fact a litmus test for a society's prejudices. The case of Milo proves that very bluntly, many saw the harassment of women and people of color as inoffensive, as an opinion that can be tolerated and where his publisher was concerned could also be sold for great profit. When Roxane Gay says the red line was breached when his comments hit too close to home, this is not just a turn of phrase. Home, in this scenario, is anything that the established powerful in a society consider to be their own. The sexual exploitation of children is something that anyone can hate, but other races, other the religions, sexual orientations, women, are just other. They are not home, and so they are fair game because of free speech. Not, obviously. <laughs> I, just, I just, My it was too subtle a joke, I just have to make sure I put it home. Um, how much time do I have left, Andreas? Oh, really? Okay, do I have like two minutes? Okay. So I want to actually, it's perfect, I, I'm, I'm coming home with this. So the last thing I'd like to touch on is the concept of the marketplace of ideas. Have you heard of this concept? Um, so when you say that you should ban or limit hate speech, people say, but it's a marketplace of ideas. Just let people say what they want and the invisible hand will make sure that the bad ideas will not flourish and the good ideas will rise to the top like they don't live on planet Earth, right? <laughs> like, it's, like, it's, just, it's such a completely bizarre thing to say. So the marketplace of ideas, I'll be very brief with this, but it's an important concept to show the myth of uh, free speech crisis thinking. The marketplace of ideas is a fallacy. Uh, it doesn't exist, the marketplace. Does, actually, the actual market doesn't exist at all. We have an oligarchy of ideas, just like we have an oligarchy of politics and an oligarchy of economics. I was talking to, actually to um, Andreas earlier today about how there is a very small number of uh, families or companies that control the food supply in Norway, for example, as opposed to in the UK, which is a much bigger group of people. The marketplace of ideas is generally run by a very small number of people. Uh, it is a cartel, it's a monopoly. So to assume that everyone has the same access to the market is completely wrong. So I, I have, so if I say something tomorrow, I can publish it, I can write it. I have, I have access to the marketplace of ideas because of my job and because of my platform one of you might not have that access. So you can, you can produce your idea into the marketplace, but it's going to get nowhere, right? Who, who has the ability to make sure all ideas are in the same market all at the same time? No one. And the marketplace of ideas is also run by a very small group of people who are all interconnected and networked. So I can tell you that the media world in the UK is basically five people, right? Right? and their families and their sons, and they all went to the same schools and the same colleges, and on a long, lazy day where they've had a hard day, they'll pick up the phone to their friend and say, do you have a quote for me? That's how the marketplace of ideas works, right? So this notion that free speech is about ensuring that the best ideas flourish and the worst ideas don't, based on equal access to platform, also is living in this ideal world that doesn't really exist um, in real life. So I will end on how to challenge all these excuses, right? How How do we push back against these ideas that there is a myth? So first we reclaim the true meaning of free speech, which I hope I've done a little bit of here. So when someone says free speech to you, the first thing that should come up now is... Well, A, doesn't exist in the first place. Um, So why are you happy with these limitations on free speech, but not the limitations that mean that you can abuse people online? Like, why why are you happy with this and not that? So we reclaim the true meaning of free speech, which is freedom to speak rather than the right to speak without consequence. We challenge hate speech more forcefully. We are unafraid to contemplate banning or no-platforming those we think are harmful to the public good, because these are our platforms and we have a right to them, and being tolerant of objection to free speech when it happens. The free speech crisis myth is a call, in the end, at the end of the day, it's a call for orthodoxy, and it's a call for passiveness in the face of assault. A moral right to express unpopular opinion is not a moral right to express those opinions in a way that silences others, harms them, or puts them in danger of violence. There are those who abuse free speech, who wish others harm, and who roll back efforts to ensure that all citizens are treated with respect. These are just facts, and free speech crisis mythology is preventing us from confronting them. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much for a wonderful lecture, Nesrin. Um, and uh, thank you so much for writing this amazing book that I hope a lot of you will have read and will read. Um, and I just have to forgive me I need my glasses, I think I'm going to get one and off. Um, Um, You wrote a really interesting and quite a thought-provoking book and quite a dense book, (laughs) as we agreed agreed upon. Um, And you address um, quite a few myths in this book. Mm -hmm. Um, Gender equality, the myth of political correctness crisis, the myth of um, free speech crisis, the myth of damaging identity politics, the myth of virtuous origin and the myth of reliable narrator. And what struck me when I was reading your book, that I found your book both quite defiant and very brave in the current climate that we're in at the moment, um, because there is a, definitely um, my feeling that everybody agrees upon that there is a freedom of speech crisis. And it's, you know, it's, it's threatening our li- our lives, literally. And, um, and I'm thinking that... Um, I'm hoping that our conversation can bring some new perspectives to this. But first of all, why should we listen to you, Nesreen?
1: Such a good question. <laughs> Great question. Uh, so you, sh- you shouldn't, actually, <laughs> if you don't want to. Um, but humbly, um, I would just give a bit of background as to how I came to um, these myths. Um, so I come from Sudan, and I grew up in North Africa and the Middle East... Um, I grew up in a very conservative, traditional family that had lots of uh, old-fashioned views about what women should be doing for a living. Um, And it was very difficult for me to leave. Um, I had to leave, basically, because there was no way I was going to have the life and career that I wanted. And so I left my family and my country um, about 15 years ago now, it was very difficult. Uh, they didn't talk to me for a while, and so I felt like I had done a lot of work mentally to escape, physically it wasn't a problem leaving, but mentally it was quite hard um, to cut all these links that have been forged from childhood um, about the supremacy of our culture, and you know, supremacy of our values. Um, So, I had done a lot of work to convince myself that I had been brainwashed, basically, into this very um, mostly compliant society for women. So, the the thing that I had to really work on was to um, undo this idea that, basically, if you want to be happy, you need to find your role as a woman, you need to be complementary to men. Um, as a woman. And so I did all that work, it was a very difficult time, did a lot of work um, and then went through my own crisis, my own faith crisis, my own, you know, personality crisis and came to the UK thinking, this is it, this is amazing, I'm out, you know, I'm out, this is where feminism has won. Where, um, uh, where you know, minorities have freedom, where there is no, I had idealized this version of the West uh, because I was so desperate to leave what I thought was a particularly oppressive society. And the reason you should listen to me is that I then realized that it was exactly the same, but in different ways. Um,
2: and you moved from Saudi Arabia to I, the UK. I was in Saudis.
1: Like I lived in yeah, Saudi exactly. Arabia for a few years. So I went from like an incredibly uh, very highly policed society. It was not that it was oppressive. It was policed. Men and women were very heavily policed um, to London and realized that my new home had all sorts of its own problems, but they were just much harder to deal with because they were less clear, they were less obvious. You know, I could just ha- I could have a shouting match with my family and feel very good about myself um, because I was fighting for, you know, freedom of women and all that kind of stuff. And then you come to the UK and someone says something like, well, you know, sometimes when women's role is to complement the man's role and you think, hang on, <laughs> this is exactly what I was told but in a very different way. So... About 10 years ago, I began thinking, oh, man, I think, I've, I think I'm just kind of out of the frying pan into the fire here. But it doesn't feel like a fire. Like, nobody else thinks there's a fire, you know. Um, and because I was so attuned to it, because I was so desperate for this new refuge, I, was, I had a very heightened sensitivity to all the things I'd, I had run away from, and they were all there, but in different ways. But no one was talking about them. You know, Everyone thought everything was great. Um, so I was thinking about this over the past few years, and then all these little things I had noticed began to percolate upwards into politics and political culture. So when Jordan Peterson... You know Jordan Peterson? Have you invited him here as well? <laughs> <laughs> no. Just s- oh. a okay. <laughs> Just Okay. He's been here then today. Oh, okay. Why. So, when Jordan Peterson <laughs> came up and said that uh, women were unhappy in the world today because they tried to have jobs and babies, um, this is a person who was teaching at Harvard, and everyone was really shocked. I was like, yes, thank you. This is what I've been trying to say. This exists here and you did not recognize it because it happens in ways that are quite insidious. Um, And so to just cut a long story short, you should listen to me because I came from a very conservative society and moved to another conservative society, but didn't realize it at the time. And so in a weird way, I became a sort of witness to the similarities between the two types of exceptionalism that we have um every society thinks it's special and um the West
2: is no exception. And you have to say that the UK and the Saudis have a very close relationship too. They love each so other. They love each other. <laughs> yes. But it's interesting when it comes to the concept of you know, freedom of speech and in the UK, um, you have people like Brendan O'Neill, your, your dear friend from Spike magazine. Best um, friend for life. <laughs> he says that there's a plague of free speech oppression. Yeah. And also, our dear Prime Minister Boris Johnson um, recently said that, you know, we need to, um, he's been regarded as quite a free speech model. Here, and he said yeah. that in the UK needs a campaign for the right to make jokes and the right within the law to be satirical um, to the point of causing mild offence because it is because it's when you endlessly shush people up and stifle debate that extremism flourishes. So if we were going to follow you, Nasserine, um we're actually stifling the debate by, you know, you talk about punishing, uh, punishing people who, who, um, when it comes to the free speech debate, but is that something we should do? Isn't, I mean, you're very critical to the idea of the marketplace of ideas, but isn't it so that, you know, when we go so many people online, able to voice themselves, that, you know, the idea that arguments come up to light and we can debate them, and it's a very healthy situation, instead of us trying to curtail these voices? So uh, let's, talk, let's talk about Boris Johnson. Um, Boris
1: Johnson and Brendan O'Neill and all these uh, white male writers who talk about being silenced all the time from their newspaper columns um, and their TV shows. I'd like to see one person being silenced. Just show me one and then we can talk. But I, I, don't have, I don't have an example. So Boris Johnson is an example of... the the failure of the marketplace of ideas, both his uh, position as prime minister and his position as journalist. So Boris Johnson was fired as a journalist about 20 years ago for making up sources, making up reports. Not only was he caught, he was fired from a British newspaper. Um, He then threatened, he colluded with a friend of his to beat up another journalist uh, for writing things that they didn't like. He has been caught making up stories um, in another journalism role. He has a column in the Telegraph newspaper in the UK, which is just the wor- most... It's just Britain... It's just the worst written column ever. Like, a 12-year-old could write a better column. He gets paid six figures for it. Um, and whatever Boris Johnson does, he can lie, he can make up sources, he can get fired, he can threaten to beat people up but he still manages to become prime minister and still manages to maintain his column. Why? Because Boris Johnson is from a very highly networked, old, elite family in politics, and he has a lot of relations in the journalism and politics world that ensure that no matter what he does, he is unlikely to fail. So the fact that Boris Johnson ideas are out there aren't because of the marketplace of ideas, it's because he's been pushed artificially into the marketplace of ideas because he has all this access to platforms. So when I talk about curbing Boris Johnson's speech, I think that's a good thing. He's a liar and a cheat and someone who is an unreliable source. He should be fired. Firing Boris Johnson from his position is not curbing his free speech. It is following the rules of journalism, which is that you have to have facts. And so... What the free sp- I'm glad you asked this question because it's a very good example of what free speech does to our brains, right? We just start, we forget the original offence. So it's like someone, I mean, be very careful with this metaphor just to make sure I get it right. It's like someone saying we, we have the right to punch people all the time. It is my right to punch you. And then you punch that person and then you punch them back and they're like, whoa, that's kind of too far you know, for you to respond. You're like, But you, you, you made the original offence. That's what free speech thinking does. Like, it forgets the original offence. It makes us forget why the problem exists and focuses on how we respond to the problem. You should absolutely 100% silence people who make up sources, silence people who lie. Uh, a very simple example. Did you know that on Instagram, if you don't hashtag a product placement post with ad, someone can take you to court. Did you know this? So if someone it gets paid money to plug this glass of wine and says, mm, wonderful glass of wine at the House of Literature and gets paid for that, but doesn't make it clear that that is a paid post, someone can take you to court for basically selling an item without letting your consumers know that you're selling to them. This is a very basic right that everyone has, but we forget that when it comes to free speech,
2: right? So these laws need to exist. But at the same time, I, I have to challenge you a bit, because when we're talking say, okay, about Boris, and you say you know, he is, a de- after all, a democratically elected Prime Minister, yep. and sometimes when I um, when I think about the current situation and who gets elected, um, I don't know if you've seen the movie Brexit, you know, with Benedict yep. Cumberbatch. And there's a very interesting scene that goes again, it goes repeated in the movie when when Cumberbatch, hated by everybody, at least on the conservative side, he puts his head down on the asphalt and he he can listen to the roar of the people, or mm-hmm. he goes into the room and he goes shh. And there is, you know, he's he's tapped into this genuine concern. And can it not be that, you know, people like Boris and and, um, Dominic Cunnings and people who are elected, whom we perceive as Mm right-wing, actually are um, in touch with people who feel um, disenfranchised? Um, And it's easy for us. I mean, both of us are quite privileged. We've got our platforms. And they are actually listening to to a group of people who are not being able to voice themselves and we can actually talk about the haves and the have-nots in the same way that a lot of people talk about the, su- the somewheres and anywheres. Yep. And I think, for me personally, I think that's a really um, important view when we're talking about free speech, that it's not about colour, it's about have and have-nots.
1: Yep, so, that's, so there's, this, there's two components to that answer. One is how did Boris Johnson become the choice for Prime Minister in the first place? How did he end up in the position that he can then be elected as head of the Conservative Party? And the second point is, why are people voting for him? So Boris Johnson became Prime Minister not because he's any good. Um, like I said again, because he has this, this is a particular issue with British politics, is that the path to being elected particularly in the Conservative Party is a very... It's kind of quite rigged, right, so he became a politician and rose through the ranks of the Conservative Party because he is Alexander de Peffel Boris Johnson, like because he is a person of a certain pedigree. So the choice is an imperfect choice in the first place. Boris did not have the same uh, access to his political career as a junior Labour MP from the north of England. So, this goes back to the idea of the oligarchy, of the marketplace of ideas. It is that he has access that other people don't have access to. So, it's an imperfect choice in the first place. Um, and the second point is that this view that, that people are voting for liars and cheats and um, serial adulterers, I think Boris has like three, two, two kids out of bedlock now. Um, uh, he's like He's like Trump, he has all these, um, affairs and kids. It's fine to have affairs, it's fine to have kids out of wedlock. but to not acknowledge them, I think, is pretty evil. Um, so the reason why people are voting for people like Boris, who seem to have no value system at all, or like Trump, who seem to have no morality or value system at all, is framed as this sort of rebellion of the have-nots, right? Framed as this rebellion of people who don't have access to money and culture and privilege. And actually, if you crunch the numbers, the story is quite different. Um, it is mostly the privileged who gravitate towards people like Boris Johnson and Donald Trump because what they promise them is a, um, what's what I'm looking for, is a, a sustaining of their status. So let's talk about Trump very briefly. And this point is in the book. I was shocked when I re- when I found this out. Um, so when the Trump campaign was picking up momentum, everyone went and spoke to this like one coal miner in Appalachia, like one guy in uh, the Midwest who had lost his job because the coal mines shut down. And you know his face was streaked with coal dust, and he had a helmet, and he spoke in like short. You know, pithy wisdoms about like how'm you know my family needs some help, and you know the New York Times and all the liberal papers went to the coal mines, and they were like, "This is why Donald Trump is winning because he can speak to these people and their sense of disaffection and Hillary Clinton and the privileged left people like me and I uh, just assume that we will get their vote, and uh, we don't really understand them. Turns out actually that the people who voted for Donald Trump were overwhelmingly in the $100,000 and above income category. Those in the, uh, I think it's like 35 and below, mostly voted Democrat. Um, and actually, even in the uh, wealthy categories that voted for Trump, no black people voted for him. So income was completely irrelevant unless you counted that the wealthier people voted for Trump, and it was completely irrelevant because it was about demographics at the end of the day. The people who voted for Trump, overwhelmingly, from all income classes, were white, um, and they were by no means, uh, his win was by no means secured by white working class voters. White working class voters, this is chapter eight, if I ever write another version, are a myth, (laughs) in that they do exist as people, in the world, obviously, but they do not hold this huge sway of power that people think they do, merely because they are far more complicated than that. Like, the way people speak about the white working class is that they're just this one lump, and if you piss them off, they're going to vote against you. Um, and actually, they vote all sorts of ways. You know, they vote on culture. They vote on, on, on uh, personality. But people view them as kind of disaffected, uh, disenfranchised, easy to provoke. And if you don't kind of say the right things or appeal to them in a certain way, they're going to turn against you. This is a very useful fiction. Um, and it hides the fact that the reason why such populist politicians keep getting elected now is because they promise a certain status preservation for people who are afraid things are changing too quickly. Um, And those people exist across all classes, but they exist mostly along one demographic, um, and that is male and white.
2: And would you say that's the same demographic that also... To bring in no no platforming, that they're also the same demographic that sort of say that um, no, no not that not platforming no platforming is also um, a, a threat to freedom of speech.
1: Um, so no platforming is a slightly more complicated issue because it it's just it's, it, it happens for a variety of reasons. Um, it's a very sexy issue. Everyone wants to talk about no platforming. It's a very clear example. Every, when you talk about freedom of speech, someone will say, what about no platforming? Like They have the final argument. And actually, it's another thing I realized when doing my research is that no platforming is very rarely a result of a university disinviting someone. That almost never happens. It's usually a student body. So when people are invited to speak at universities, the university doesn't invite them very rarely it's a, it's separate student bodies so like uh, the you know the vegetarian society of you know university college London or whatever will invite someone to speak um it's organized by students they will usually not pay actually because they don't have the money um and sometimes other students will object and they will have a conversation about it. I think that's absolutely fine. You know, I think that's absolutely fine if people feel that there is a... So a good example of this is Milo, when he went to... So Milo made a career out of no-platforming, right? He wanted to be no-platformed. So he was invited to Berkeley and he was going to uh, call the name, he was going to identify how, evil this is, he was going to identify students who were undocumented in the audience. So to really raise the bar, to make sure that there was a scene, you know, he wanted to make sure that he would be no platform, that there would be violence, he threatened to have people deported because he wanted to create this free speech event and he was no platformed. Instead of people saying, again, focusing on the response and not the offense, instead of people saying, Is it okay that someone comes into your university and exposes you for being an undocumented migrant that might be deported? Is that okay? And instead, they focus on the fact that, oh, but you no-platformed him. Like, what does that mean? For free speech, I don't care. Like I care about the people that are but going. But in many ways, Milo's mm. quite
2: an extreme so- example. There are quite a few other people who have more yes. moderate views and more, and more um, moderate standpoints. And still, there, there seems to be a lot of debate that not not platforming is not not should be not be happening at universities, which should be intellectually open arenas. And um, Is is the, is there not a threat when universities and student bodies start stopping certain people coming to? Voice opinions, which are, genuine, which are genuine discussions. I agree
1: with that response, and there's two components to it. Number one, I think it is fine for people to have debates and disinvite people that they realise are offensive or hurtful to people. I think that's fine. Um, it's people's right. You know, if, if people are not being forced... If there has been a call, I spoke to a lot of students about this um, in the UK and the US, and they said, "Look, we didn't—we re- didn't realize, you know. We invited someone we knew he was—he was maybe a bit controversial, but then we didn't realize that it was so hurtful to X, Y, and Z. And we want—we don't want to make our fellow students feel hurt or victimized. Um, but there, yes, there are also incidents where people have gone overboard, where people have threatened or intimidated." Um, or created a security issue that the university felt like they needed to shut down the event. These are, in in the free speech chapter you'll see in the book, these are, in the US in particular, such a small number of cases. I counted one in 2018. Such a small number of cases, but they have been taken to... Basically, expanded into the entire crisis. They don't happen that often. Um, they shouldn't happen, but like students, are gonna be students. You know what I mean? Like they're, they're 18, 19 year old kids uh, dealing with a lot of very you know, painful issues, and sometimes mistakes happen. Um, and that's the thing that people are not allowed to do. Like liberals are not allowed to make mistakes. It has to be a reflection of a wide, you know, fascist panic about something. And it's like you know they're not even allowed to drink. Some of these kids—they're yeah, so young, they can't even have a drink, and we expect them to curate these incredibly complicated, complex issues. Um, so yeah, I just think sometimes students, university students, can be obnoxious and very morally worthy and aggressive.
2: But there's there's, there's not only not, not platforming issues at universities like here in Norway we, we had the, the great pleasure of inviting Steve Bannon to to, to Norway. And well done. um and it was um, and there was, a, you know, there was a huge debate whether this was the right thing to do. And you know, so, that, so there are also other platforms where people are yep. invited. And what is your stance um, when it comes to these kind of um, so, uh, so, say, so, situations? So I wrote
1: about Steve... Steve Bannon was invited to um, the UK to speak at an event held by the Financial Times and one held by The Economist. So he's being you know, hosted at very prestigious organizations. Exactly. Mm. Um, and Steve Bannon is actually a very good example of liberal complicity. So, you know, I think sometimes our worst enemies are ourselves. Um, it just, you know, you can invite Steve Bannon if you want. You just have to be very clear about what you're willing to tolerate. You know, there should be no hypocrisy about it. If people want to invite Steve Bannon, just don't dress it up as anything about how we need to listen to different opinions, different views. Just say you don't give a shit about racism, you know. Just say, that's fine. I'm completely okay with that. Someone says, look, I don't think racism is a big deal. I think it's natural, you know. I think, you know, every society has racism and Steve Bannon is just being honest about it. You think, fine, okay, invite him. But don't invite him to the FT and say, don't be intolerant of other people's views, we have to listen to them. Um, so the no platforming thing when it comes to Steve, Steve Bannon or people being invited here or other prestigious, prestigious events is that they are done under false pretense. You know, They're done under the, the moral flag of free speech when actually it's just about attention. Steve Bannon gets attention. He'll get you an audience, you'll have a little controversy, and it'll be a thing. But what are you sacrificing to get that? You're sacrificing community relations. You're sacrificing you know, people being hurt. You're, you're sacrificing potentially a threat to people's lives as someone who worked for you know, an organization that, that uh, cr- creates fake news about minorities. And you're also risking... Steve Bannon pioneered the Muslim ban um, in the US, that is an evil thing, to, to racially profile people and ban them from coming into a country. If you don't care about that, invite him, but you
2: need to be honest. I, I would just, before you know one, of th- one question I really would like to talk to you about um, is you know the, is the role of Islam and the role of Muslims because, in the last um, I would say it, since the uh, the ban um, since the Salman Rushdie mm-hmm. satanic verses, um, there have been numerous incidents um, where. I would say also liberals too say that this is the um, this is the uh, basic proof that our, our world is changing is because of the Muslim presence in, in, in the world. Because after satanic verses, you had the, the cartoons controversy, the Mohammed cartoons controversy, and then you had Charlie Hebdo. And this, a lot of people say this is you know the basic proof that, that our society is being changed in a in a in a direction we did not see coming and we have to fight against this Mm -hmm. and that Islam and Muslims are changing the European or the Western way of life and our approach to free speech. What is your response to that? That is
1: a very important question and we need another hour for it, (laughs) but I'll try and be brief.
2: Um, So just
1: to give just a little bit of very important background to the Islam, um, Muslims, in our society question is that the challenge... People talk about the challenge of dealing with certain views um, and violent uh, acts from Muslims in Europe as if it's only confined to Europe. We're dealing with it as well in the Muslim world. It's a global issue. It's not a European issue. It's not a Western world issue. It is an issue that actually claims more Muslim lives and destroys more Muslim lives than it does... European lives. So to essentialize it and say, oh, it's just people going nuts in Europe is not true. It's a a challenge that has been going on for hundreds of years. It has a history. You know, there was a time when Islam, for example, prophet cartoons, there was a time, if you go to um, uh, uh, the British Museum, you will see depictions of the prophet in Farsi, Persian art. It was completely fine four or 500 years ago, but a relapse happened, an anti-reformation uh, move happened. So we have our, our own stuff to deal with, with how the religion has been hijacked by certain forces. This is not an East versus West issue. You know, It's not a conflict of civilizations. It is a, a turmoil of a religion that is going through its own uh, historical challenges. Um, and instrumentalizations, etc. So that's the first thing I would like to say. The second thing is we shouldn't, and this is a very difficult thing to say, we shouldn't conflate, we shouldn't confuse the way some Muslims have responded negatively to speech about Muslims um, or depictions of Islam or the prophet with free speech. That's a very specific, Isolated thing. There should be no change of how free speech is moderated in order to prevent a Muslim from being upset and killing you. That is absolutely wrong. You should just keep doing what you're doing. The question we don't ask ourselves is what is the reaction on the other side? You know, we spend a lot of time talking about the Charlie Hebdo attack. Um, and the riots and the assassination. Um, But we don't spend any time talking about the flip side of that, which is when white people murder Muslims, or when white people murder each other in the name of multiculturalism, right? When white people murder each other because they want to make a point multiculturalism. It's a whole mess of community tensions that we're dealing with here, and the free speech aspect of it is tiny, but we have expanded it into the whole thing. It's actually about how we work on integrating new entrants to society, and that is always going to be challenging. There is no way, whichever way the movement works from east to west or west to east, that a country or a culture is going to absorb a huge number of people from a different culture, from a different demographic, different race, and expect things to gel overnight, especially when there is no investment in that integration. Um, a very big difference between the U.K. and Ireland, for example, is that and Canada, is that Canada and Ireland make a big preemptive effort. In integrating people when they move to Ireland and Canada, the UK just leaves them to their own devices. It says, "Here you are. Here's your money. Here's your council flat. We're going to create a big old ghetto, and you're going to sit there and be grateful we let you in." Um, humans don't work like that, right? And so the challenge on how the challenge of how new entrants, immigrants, Muslims, people from different cultures, non-Muslims even, react to these Um, cultural characteristics of freedom of speech and freedom of dress and all that kind of stuff, is not to say, well, obviously, all Muslims don't get it, they don't get European culture, they don't get enlightenment values, therefore we should let them in, is to say, if we are gonna let them in, we have to work on a conscious system of cultural integration, and we can't allow ghettoization to happen. and when, and when incidents do happen, don't collapse them into the entire community. You know, don't, it would be the same as me saying, like, Anders Breivik means that all white people can't handle multiculturalism, you know, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't let them in. You know, that does, doesn't work that way. Um, so it's a very complicated issue, and it means that its solution is a long-term solution, um, and it's one that needs to be done calmly and unhysterically, Um, And with understanding that at the end of the day, when you do let people in, you are doing it for compassionate reasons. You know, you are not doing it because anyone forced you. You know, people, it is a good thing to let people move to a safer country, a more affluent country, a country where they can have a future, where their children can have a future. Um, That is a good thing. And that is the more important principle that people don't really focus on anymore.
2: Thank you, Thank you.
0: Du har hört på Litteraturhusets podcast, som presenterar bearbetade versioner av samtaler och föredrag från Litteraturhusets program. Del gärna podcasten med familj och vänner via iTunes eller SoundCloud om du liker det du har hört. Följ oss också på Facebook och på litteraturhuset.no för information om flera aktuella arrangemanger. Musiken är er laget av apotek.